Good evening. Let's get right into our Bible study tonight, continuing our series on the life of Christ. We had ended last Wednesday talking about the continued highs, spiritual and I'd imagine emotional highs that the apostles must have felt as they were with Jesus. And there was just miracle after miracle after miracle. We talked about the uh, young 12-year-old girl who was risen from the dead. But during that entire experience of the father taking Jesus and the apostles and bringing them back to the house, and then on the way, a servant meets the, the crowd and says, uh, leave the master alone, your daughter's already dead. Jesus says, no, she's sleeping. Of course, people heckle him, and he shows up and uh, brings the mother, the father, and just, just a handful, just two or three apostles with him to show them just how amazing he is. But in the middle of that, we found that Jesus, of course, heals the woman with the issue of blood. And then we kind of ended on this, talking about, uh, let's turn to Matthew chapter 9, talking about these two blind men. There's really not a whole lot of detail given in Scripture regarding these guys. And, of course, there's multiple blind men being healed in the New Testament, both by Christ and uh, the apostles. Peter heals uh, uh, some uh, others down the road. But let's take a look in, at uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this. They said unto him, Yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. So Jesus asks the question, Do you believe before he heals? And I mentioned last time we were in this conversation that Jesus didn't heal everyone in the same way. He doesn't ask the same questions. Sometimes you find people being healed purely out of God's grace, and other times in a response to their faith. Now, it's not that God's grace isn't played out every time. Of course it is, but there are times where there's nothing attached. It's only grace, and there's times where it's grace, but also response in grace to the faith of the individual. And we also see the same case with uh, the, the young girl. It was the father's faith, it seems, that brought Jesus uh, to her and also the faith of the woman with the issue of blood. So Jesus heals both of these blind men, both of them responding, yes, we do believe. And then we're going to move on now to, uh, to the very next section, verses 32 to 34. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with the devil. This man is not able to speak, and it seems very clearly to me that the man, verse 33, was not able to speak because of the demon possession. Now, demon possession doesn't always result in the same thing. Sometimes demon possession results in someone going crazy. We see those two men in the, in the graveyard where they're throwing themselves um, uh, on things and breaking chains, and we see the the, the, the demon possession of the young child who throws himself on the fire trying to kill himself, and the father has to rescue him from death multiple times. So I would say demons definitely have personalities. I believe angels have personalities, and I would, I would venture to guess that the personality of the demon has something to do with the, the terror and havoc that demon causes on the individual they are possessing. So this demon-possessed man, not able to speak, obviously cannot state, 
I have faith, heal me. Uh, there's no way that this demon-possessed man is involved on his own in his own healing. Christ, purely out of grace, no faith involved, casts the demon out of this man. We're told that, a mul- that the multitudes in verse 33 marvels. They're amazed, saying, it was never seen in Israel. No prophet has ever done what Jesus has done. Now, there's been some great prophets. That's, not, that's no small statement. Moses, Elijah, Elisha, the other Old Testament prophets, the, the amazing things that they accomplished. And essentially, the Israelites are comparing Jesus to all the Old Testament prophets and say, this guy's the best. Well, that's true. The book of Hebrews tells us the same. The book of Hebrews essentially, in multiple chapters, compares Jesus to multiple um, types of people, including the angels, and says Jesus always comes out on top. Obviously, Jesus is the Son of God. So these people recognize that, but not all of them recognize it. We're told in verse 34, but the Pharisees said, he casts out devils through the prince of devils. This is not the first time, will not be the last time, that the religious leaders look at the amazing things Christ does, and they say, oh, we have an answer for that. Oh, we we have a reason for why he's doing what he's doing and how he's doing what he's doing, and it is demonic work. Jesus doesn't respond in this case to the fact that why would Satan cast out his own servants? He says that in another passage at another time. Christ has already given his logic. He's not going to give it every time he's questioned. But Christ, of course, says a house falls when its own residents fight against each other. And would I not be fighting against my own house if I was of Satan, casting out Satan's demons? It makes perfect sense to me, but the Pharisees keep using the same old illogical statements, hoping to catch the foolish off guard, hoping to catch the simple and to keep their crowds large because, of course, the Pharisees are concerned that the more people who follow Jesus, the less people that follow them. Why can't the Pharisees and Jesus get along? Because the Pharisees have chosen to reject Jesus. Now, there are some, we're told that accept Christ, and, and it seems that after his death, even more accept Christ. And In the book of Acts, you find Pharisees accepting Christ. Unfortunately, it seems that a lot of the Pharisees accept Christ, but on their own terms. I'm not saying they're not saved, but they bring in their philosophy. They bring in their traditions into their new faith. They want Christ, they want salvation, they want to accept that Christ is Messiah, but they don't want to let go of everything that they're used to. They don't want to let go of all of the, the, the teachings that they've held on to so tightly. They say, oh, we can accept Christ, but we can also bring these with us. That causes a lot of problems. We're going to see some of those problems tonight. So they say, hey, he's the prince of devils, casting out devils, versus 35 and on, Jesus goes about teaching in the synagogues and preaching the kingdom, healing the sickness and healing the disease. Verse 36, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they, were, they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. That word fainted, they were tired. They were discouraged. They were worn out. They didn't know where to go next. They were on the ground spiritually and emotionally and had no desire to get back up. And Christ sees the multitudes who are just emotionally, spiritually exhausted, unwilling, 
unable to get back up. And Christ says in verse 37, the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into the harvest to lift up these fallen, to not just lift them up, but to bring them up to Christ. That is the heart of Christ. That is the purpose of Christ. That is and was the mission of Christ. And if we are followers of Christ, that needs to be our heart, our purpose, our mission, to lift up the fallen and to bring them to Christ. So the deity, of course, of Christ is questioned. Let's turn to Mark chapter, I'm sorry, Matthew, excuse me. Let's go to Matthew chapter 13. We're already in Matthew, so let's go to 13. And look at verse 54. Matthew 15, verse 54, the Bible says, And when he was coming to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished, and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom? And these mighty works, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and his brethren, James, and Joseph, and Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, plural, at least two sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him, but Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The family of Jesus is mentioned. If you've ever wondered much about his family, we're not told a whole lot. We are told he has at least four brothers, four are mentioned here, and at least two sisters. So Jesus came from a, from a family of six siblings. I don't know if that would be a large family. I think it, it may be, you know, fairly average in those days where it was an honor to bear children and as many children as you could. I would imagine women had more children than just one or two. Jesus comes from a larger family, at least in our culture standards, six siblings plus himself. James is always mentioned first, and it's very likely that James is the oldest of siblings after Jesus, the oldest, you might say, child of Joseph. James uh, himself, whereas Jesus, of course, is not a child of Joseph. Joseph would have adopted Jesus. Jesus is the son of God, born by Mary. Now, it doesn't, I don't believe that the residents of Nazareth, the residents of this community are the only ones who rejected Jesus because we read in John chapter 7, his family also rejects him, at least his siblings do. Why don't you turn there to John chapter 7 for me? John chapter 7, let's see what the family of Jesus has to say about their brother. Jesus Christ um, is, of course, doing miracles. Verse 1 of chapter 7, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. For he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the tabernacles was at hand. Now this is... Kind of further along in the ministry of Christ, a lot has already been accomplished by Christ, by John chapter 7. He's done a lot of miracles, including feeding of the 5,000. That's just one of many things that he's done up to this point. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles is at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. Basically his brothers said, Jesus, we don't want to see you. We don't want to see your works. We are not interested in you even being around us. Get 
out of here and take your disciples with you, of which we're not part. Remember, we, not long ago, I had talked about how Jesus was speaking and the family came and said, we want to see Jesus. And Jesus said, this is my family. <laughs> I, I don't know why his family wanted to see him, but it certainly wasn't to listen to his teaching. Here they're saying, we don't want you even in our presence. It might have been, as I stated at that time, an opportunity for them to gain some type of notoriety. Say, look how important we are because Jesus is important, even though we don't really like the guy. Even because he, he makes us look bad, he makes us angry. Even though we don't believe he's, he's who he claims to be, you know, we're going to ride his, his, his coattails, you might say, right? So they actually state, get out of here. Verse 4, this is John 7. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. For if thou doest these things, show thyself to the world. Hey, you know what? Let the world be your judge. If what you, if what you claim is true, then show the world. Stop hiding here with us and get out there. I don't believe they're saying, hey, Jesus, let the world see you. They're, like, they're saying, we don't believe you. Let's see what the world has to say. Stop doing things in secret. Now, was Jesus only, uh, you know, hanging out in his hometown? Was he only staying in that area? No, of course he wasn't. He was all over the place. His brothers are accusing Jesus of hiding. His brothers are accusing Jesus of doing things in secret, only nearby in his what you might call comfort zone. I mean, these guys are harsh. I mean, you thought the brothers of David were harsh when David came to Goliath? These guys are harsh. Do you think that cut Jesus emotionally? I think it did. I think that when Peter denied Christ three times, I think Jesus was discouraged. Here, Jesus trying to do miracles in his own country. He visits his hometown multiple times, not just once. And every time he's there, people go crazy. Remember the first time he visited his hometown towards the beginning of his ministry where he gets up in the synagogue and he, and he preaches and he gives a prophecy and basically says, I'm, I'm the fulfillment of that. Remember what they wanted to do? Throw him off a cliff. <laughs> and then we find Matthew, you know, he's, he's visiting again and they're saying, who are you? Aren't you, you know, the, the son of Joseph and Mary and the, and the sibling of these four boys and at least these, these sisters, these two plus girls? And who are you? And then John chapter 7, another time, uh, he's told by his own family, get out of here. Stop trying to hide in your own hometown and get out in the world and let them be your judge. Man, Jesus keeps going back, and he keeps being rejected by those closest to him. If you've been hurt by those closest to you, Christ knows how that feels. And so we read it in John chapter 7, verse 5, for neither did his brethren believe in him. But Jesus says in verse 6, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. All right. He's talking to his disciples at that point. He's saying the world's going to hate you and so on. <laughs> All right. Jesus hated by his brothers. And then were you aware that the book of James is written not by the Apostle James, not by the brother of John. How do we know that? Because James, the brother of John, was killed in the beginning of Acts. The book of James, right after the book of Hebrew in the New Testament, was written by the brother of Jesus. That same brother who says, get out of here, get in the world, let them be your judge. Stop trying to be secretive about who you claim to be. We don't agree, we don't believe, we don't want you here. That same James writes... The book of James. Now let's turn there. Just read the, the, 
the first couple of verses and find out what James has to say regarding Jesus here. So James chapter 1, the oldest brother under Jesus. Verse 1, James, a servant of God. Okay, you know, that, that's pretty standard. James probably would have claimed that as a young boy. James would have claimed to be a servant of Yahweh, of God. Even as Jesus was walking the earth, he just would have claimed Jesus was a liar. His brother was crazy, but he's still a servant of God. But here's where we really get interesting. And of the Lord Jesus Christ. James now equates the Lord Jesus Christ, gives Jesus Christ equal footing with Yahweh, with God. James now says, I'm not only a servant of Yahweh, God, Jehovah, I am a servant also of Jesus Christ, who is also God. James went from John 7, get out of here, we don't believe you, you're, you're playing a game, we, you're not tricking us, stop being secretive, get out in the world, let them judge you, to James chapter 1, I'm a servant of Jehovah and a servant of Christ, the son of Jehovah. What happened well, Christ died on the cross, right? Yes, he did. Was James there? We don't know. I kind of doubt it. Why would I doubt that? Because when, Je when Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he looks down and sees his mother Mary, and he says, here is your son. He does not say James. Who does he call? John, the apostle who he loved. He said, Mother, woman, here's your son, John. He's going to take care of you. John, my apostle, here's your mother. Take care of her, which is a pretty strong implication to me. James, his half-brother, was nowhere to be found. Think of it. If James was a good Jew, James would not be at the persecution, the death of his crazy older brother who claimed to be the Son of God. He'd be as far from there as possible. If James was in his head, as he defined it, a good Jew, he would be in town. As people say, wait, isn't your brother Jesus being killed today? James would say, yeah, he kind of deserves it. Yeah, I'm siding with the Pharisees on this one. James would have cared more about looking like a good Jew than being at his own brother's death. I don't think it was the death of Christ that changed James' mind. I don't think James was there. So, what happened? I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to show you what happened. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. After that, he, Jesus, was seen of about 500 brethren at once. Now, this chapter just begins by talking about how we know Christ rose from the dead, and it mentions the sightings. Verse 6 talks about the 500 who saw him at one time, not over time. Of course, Christ, you know, walking the earth for 40 days after his death, before he ascends, would have been seen by way more than 500. At one time, 500. Of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. I love how God describes the death of believers is just falling asleep, a, a peaceful passing. 
Verse 7, after that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. Christ came to his oldest, under him, sibling, James. We're not told he came to the other three brothers. We're not told he came to the sisters. We're not told he didn't go. (laughs) We're just told specifically James. That had an impact on James. Seeing the resurrected Lord, I believe, is what convinced James he's the real deal. How do we know that? How do we know it wasn't something else after the ascension of Christ? How do we know that it, that it wasn't the, the, um, the, the maybe preaching of Peter or, or something else going on in, in uh, his life that, that maybe convinced him and uh, brought James around to the place where he said, hey, you know what, I need to accept Christ? Because it's uh, pretty obvious that James was around at the beginning of the church in Jerusalem. So much so, he was actually set up as the, it seems, high elder, lead pastor, you might say. If not the senior, one of the highest, I believe the highest in church uh, history claims, James was, for better use, the senior pastor of the church of Jerusalem. That's not what he would have called himself. That's a, a new term we use today. But he would essentially have been the high elder, the high bishop, the high pastor of the church of Jerusalem. How do we know that? Because when you look at Acts chapter 15, you find that there are some issues going on in the church of Jerusalem, specifically related to the Pharisees. I told you we talk about those guys. The Pharisees who got saved, accepted Christ as their Savior, but brought their traditions into the church and wanted people to continue following their traditions while also following Christ. Well, these Pharisees were confusing people. These Pharisees were causing especially the new converts, the Gentile converts, the non-Jews. They were causing these guys to think, well, am I saved? Am I not saved? Do I have to be a Jew to be saved? Do I need to follow the Old Testament law to be saved? And the Pharisees, these converted Pharisees, said yes, yes, and yes. Essentially, you need to convert to Judaism to follow the Messiah of the Jews and to be saved. you got to be a Jew to be saved by the Messiah of the Jews. That's basically what the, the, the Pharisees believed. And on top of that, you gotta, you got to be a good Jew. you got to do what the Jews believe and follow their traditions for this Messiah to save you and to keep you saved. The book of Galatians refers to this idea of staying saved. And a lot of Gentile believers struggled with that. They thought, well, if I get saved and make mistakes, do I stay saved? And they thought you didn't. And they thought you could lose your salvation. So in Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul states, no, 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 guys. Once you're saved, you can't lose your salvation. You can't, uh, are you saved by faith? Yes. Well, then, you know, it's not works that keep you saved after you've been saved by faith. It's faith throughout. So these Pharisees were causing a lot of problems in the church. And I bet James, the high elder of the church of Jerusalem, I'm just going to guess here. I bet he was probably pretty thrilled at first that the Pharisees were getting saved. Like, you know, these are the guys he's rubbed shoulders with. These are the guys that before he got saved, he probably looked up to. And he probably thought, wow, this is great, man. You know, like the common man's coming into the church of Jerusalem. Pharisees are coming in. It's like, oh, this is going to be good. You know, thousands of people. And you know the ones that cause the most havoc are, are probably the ones James might have been most excited about at first. Like, this is good. Even the religious leaders are coming to, coming to see our side and coming to see Christ for who he is. And it's these guys that just cause him so much heartache. 
as a lead pastor, as a high bishop, as a high elder in the church of Jerusalem. So in Acts 15, there's a conversation that's being had. And the apostles and the elders, including James, would be in this probably large room having like a conference. And the discussion comes up, what are we going to do? The Gentiles are being told you got to be a Jew. you got to follow these laws to, to be saved. Is that true? Is that not true? The apostle Peter stands up and says, no, no, that's not true. Christ saves all, and he saves all uh, because of what he did, not because of who they are. He kind of preaches a message there. And then James, look at chapter 15, verse 13. After, and after they held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simon hath declared how God at first. And basically he just kind of reiterates what the apostle Peter states. He gives his point of view and the congregation of apostles and elders, there would have been more than just James. He would not have been the only pastor in a church that large of probably 10,000 plus. They all come to an agreement and say, you're right. Peter's right. James is right. Peter, which would have been probably the high apostle, and James, which was very likely, most likely the high pastor. These two guys are in agreement. They're in unity. Makes sense to us. We're going with them. And so at that point, it was pretty much solidified that, that the new converts, the Gentiles, did not need to become Jews to be saved. They did not need to, um, they did not need to follow the traditions of the Jews to be saved. And so James now, uh, I think, clarifies for us that uh, Jesus is the answer. Now, I want to do one more thing. Go back to Acts chapter 1, then we're going to move on. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. These all continue with one accord in prayer. This is at the, after Christ ascends, supplication with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. All right, doesn't mention his sisters there, but does mention his brothers, plural. I would think all four. So James is already saved by this point. James has already experienced Christ, whether... His brothers saw Christ, or James told them, I don't know. I would assume the brothers saw Christ. I would assume that at the ascension of Christ, after the 40 days, his family would have been there. James would have already you know, told, passed on the experience, and the brothers would have seen Jesus too. And so at the very beginning of the church, James is already converted, already convinced. Why spend so much time talking about James? Because I think it's a pretty big deal that while Christ was on earth doing miracles, James, as brothers and sisters, seeing amazing things, they still rejected Christ. And we've got family that do the same. We've got family that see amazing things, have seen God do amazing things, have read the Bible, grew up in church, hearing about God doing amazing things. Look, until our children, our siblings, our family, until they connect with Christ on a personal level. Seeing the miracles of Christ isn't enough. They'll just explain it away. They'll say the Bible's a book of lies. It's a book of fables. They'll say the, the, the fact that someone was sick and then someone prayed and then they got better, that's just luck. It's happenstance. It, you, know, you can't tell me God healed them. I don't believe it. They will always have an excuse when the miracles of God are so clear to the rest of us. They need to see Christ themselves. And so my suggestion to you is that you show them Christ in the way you treat them. Show them Christ in the way you talk 
what you do, don't do. What you say, don't say. Let them see Christ through you and pray that their eyes can be opened and eventually see Christ without you. Outside of you, they can see Christ because then and only then will they get saved. All right, our last section tonight. This is a long one. I want to turn to uh, Mark chapter 6, and then we're going to go back to Matthew. Matthew has a whole lot more to say about the commissioning of the 12 than Mark chapter 6. But Mark chapter 6 and verses 6 through 13. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went around about the village's teaching. And he called unto him the 12 and began to send them forth by two and two and gave them power over unclean spirits. It's been said that if you're going door to door, always go two by two because that's how Christ sent them, two by two. I'm not going to deny the benefit of having someone with you when you witness, having someone with you when you minister, the, the encouragement you receive when you're not alone. But nor am I going to state that because Christ sent them two by two, everything we do has to be with someone else. I, Christ didn't command it has to be this way. He just, this is what he did. So two by two, gave them power over unclean spirits, commanded them they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, nor a script, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals and not put on two coats. There are, you might say, two commissionings. There is this commissioning of the 12 where he commissions, gives them authority, sends them out with his own authority and says, in my name, speak these things. In my name, do these things. The second commissioning is when he sends us out as a church, right? When he sends us out later. Now, you could say he starts that second commissioning uh, the week of his death. He talks to the disciples in the week of his death. He, you could say he says, I'm basically sending you out again. And the apostles say, all right, well, here I go. I'm, we'll, we'll go out. They probably thought similar to this commissioning, like you're still going to be around. You're still going to be here. We'll go out and we'll come back. But um, Christ says, now I want you to, if you have money, take it. If you have a weapon, take it. And one of the apostles said, well, we have a sword. Will this do? And Christ said, that'll do. So they didn't actually send them out at that point. It was kind of a preparation for the, the, the full commissioning of his ascension when he said, now go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? That's, that's, the, that's the completion of the second commissioning. He had started that conversation while he was still alive 40-plus days earlier. And then it culminated when he ascended by saying, now go out and do what I already commissioned you to do, gave you the authority to do. In my name, speak these truths. In my name, bring the gospel. They didn't say again, do we bring a sword again? He'd already told them, bring a sword. They didn't say again, should we bring money? He already told them to bring money. They didn't say, should we bring food? He's already clarified that. This was just the, you could say that now, act, act on the commissioning I gave you. Sorry, so two commissionings. This first one, he says, don't bring a weapon, don't bring food. Uh, the clothes on your back, the sandals you got, get out there, and I will care for your needs at this first commissioning. Why? Why would Christ send them out with Nothing. Only one person by their side. Christ wanted them to see that the apostles could trust him. That the apostles would be provided for by God himself. He wanted them to learn that lesson. But is that the standard for full-time ministry? Is that the standard for a missionary? I'm going to go out. I've got nothing except the clothes I'm wearing and the ticket to where I'm going to and nothing else. Is that the standard missionaries should follow? Is that the standard for an evangelist and his wife 
who say, you know what? We're going to get out. We have a full tank of gas. We've got our clothes and nothing else and no money, but we're going to start driving, and God's going to provide. Should that be the standard for an evangelist? Is that the standard for a church as a body of believers? We've got no money, but we're going to buy this building with no money, and we're going to make this happen. Is that the standard? No, it's not. The standard is the second commissioning where Christ says, now prepare. Prepare for what may come. What would the weapon be in preparation for? Well, obviously, the weapon is to defend yourself. They were not sent out to kill, but they were to defend themselves, if nothing else, against wild beasts. I'm not necessarily saying Christ was saying use the weapon, the sword against people. He didn't say to. He didn't say not to. So that, that can be your own assumption on what that might look like. But for sure, if a wild beast attacks you, don't go on your knees and pray. Use your sword and take out the wild beast. And if you're hungry, use the money to buy food. And if you need to eat, eat the food you got and prepare for that. I believe that is how the Christian's life ought to look. It's not that there won't be times where faith is required. It's not that you'll use up all the money and there's no money left and your sandals need to be replaced and you don't have it and, you, you, you know, whatever it might be. I'm, I'm not saying those times won't come. That's when God will then give you the needs at that time. But don't just assume that God will take care of every day and not work and not plan and not save and, and, and not be prepared for the future. So this was a training course, not uh, setting a standard for how we ought to live our lives, a training course. And by the way, God's done the same for me when I was younger. God used uh, in my own life, in ministry, many times where I knew something God wanted me to do and there was no money to do it, but God provided the money last minute. Multiple times in college, I was overseeing outreach uh, basketball tournaments, and there was no money, and there was no people. God provided the people and the money after I'd already committed to doing this. I made the commitment, made the plans, booked the, booked, booked the, the court, uh, got permission from the city, and started gathering together players, and I, there was no money. But before the tournament began, the money was there, and the people were there to make the tournament happen, and uh, people got saved. So in my own life, God used big moments of faith where I, I had nothing, and God said, I've got all you need. But since then, there's been a whole lot more moments of I've been prepared for what God has brought into my life. All right, let's go ahead and uh, turn to Matthew now and see the much bigger picture of what's going on here. Matthew, we're going to start in chapter 9. We finish in chapter 9. I'm not reading all these verses. It, it encompasses the end of chapter 9, the entirety of chapter 10, and then even going into verse 1 of chapter 11. But let's start with chapter 9, and uh, this is where I told you at the end of chapter 9, he looks and he says, hey, uh, there's a great harvest. We need laborers. We need people to get out there and serve. Going into chapter 10, verse 1, he called unto him this 12 disciples, gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal uh, all manner of sickness and disease. He names the 12 apostles, and then verse 5 these 12 sent forth and commanded them. All right, so Mark chapter 6 and Luke just pretty much give us what Christ did. Very little of what he said. Matthew gives us a whole lot more of what he said, fleshes it out. So he says, uh, go into the way of the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans, enter ye not. Can you see why there would have been some confusion when Christ ascended, and uh, although he said, go into Jerusalem and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth, he clarified that at the second commission. Sometimes even when Christ 
gives new information or clarifies, we are still stuck in what was said originally. Right? Even though you grew up thinking a certain way, and even though someone shows you something in Scripture and says, but here is God's word, saying completely different than what you believed growing up, philosophically. And you say, I see that, I get it, but boy, it's still hard to let go of what I've always believed because I believed it first. Presuppositions. So Christ, in this first commission, says, don't go to the Gentiles. Don't even go to the half-Gentiles. Half-Jew, half-Gentile, don't even go there. Only go, verse 6, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's it. You know, we find it is very difficult for the apostles in the book of Acts to go to the Gentiles, which is why Paul and Barnabas go, and the apostles pretty much focus on the Jews. Yes, Peter, in we saw in Acts chapter 15, says, hey, God allowed the Gentiles to be saved. I was there when it happened. Made it very clear to me. Yes, Peter does say that, but Peter doesn't necessarily go to the Gentiles himself. He basically says, sure, they can be saved. Send someone else. I'm going to the Jews. Even James. Go back. You don't have to, but go back to James chapter 1. And he says to the 12 scribes scattered abroad, greeting. Even James, the brother of Jesus, in his book, the epistle of James, writes to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. We've got to be careful that we don't get stuck in a pattern just because it was the first thing we did. You know what I find? A lot of churches are that way. Back in the 70s and 80s, there was, a, there was a certain way of doing outreach that worked really well for the 70s and 80s. It really did. And because it worked so well, they did it over and over again for 10, 20 years. And then the 2000s hit. And God forbid 2020 hit, and everything has changed. And yet there are churches today that still say, well, this is how you do it. Why? Because we did it this way 40 years ago. Well, you're stuck in an old pattern. doesn't mean it's the best way might have been then doesn't mean it is now unfortunately i think the apostles got stuck in that pattern didn't want to go to the gentiles paul broke that pattern and did go to the gentiles glad he did i may not be here today if he did not verse seven go preach saying the kingdom of heaven heaven is at hand again heal the sick uh verse nine provide neither gold nor silver you know in your purses uh nor script Don't take two coats. Don't take multiple shoes. Don't take multiple staffs. Only take one of each, and when you get to the city, eat what they give you there. A workman is worthy of his meat. Christ is also setting up the idea that those who are serving God should be cared for by the other servants of God. Those who are serving full-time, those who are commissioned to go and to make that their calling— ought to be cared for by others who you might say don't have a full-time calling of traveling city to city or, or spending a large amount of time in this particular calling. When you go to that city, inquire. And uh, he says if they salute you and, and they come in and, and salute it, if, if, they, if they accept you, great. If they don't, this is where he says to you know, wipe the dust off your feet and move on and curse that city before going on to another city. I think that's a great truth, not the cursing part, but the idea. Christ says, basically, don't waste your time on cities who don't want to hear it. Don't waste your time giving truth to people who don't want to hear it. There are a whole lot of others who do. You know, I found, I've said this before in my own life, I found when I was younger, I would invest a lot of time into the teenagers in our youth group who were running from God the most. 
I, I had a heart for them, and I was hoping that in some way I could bring them to God. And inevitably, my time is limited. The more time I gave them, the less time I gave other teens who were wanting God and desiring God. And in my last church in Virginia, it clicked for me, and I realized what I was doing. And so I started investing a lot of time in, into teenagers who wanted God and actually started a mentorship group where we weekly met. And that was one of the most successful things I had done up to that point in my ministry was starting a mentor group with teenagers who were looking for God, who were seeking God. Now, I didn't ignore completely the others, but I invested a whole lot less time in them. And I decided I was going to chase those who were chasing God. And I was going to stop chasing those who were running from God. And that's been a pattern ever since. I still have a heart for those running from God. I have a brother who's one of them. I, I do still have a strong desire to see them come back to God. But I have to fight that desire because I need to chase those chasing God. And I, I see that that's the advice Christ gives here to his disciples. If the city doesn't want you, find one that does. If the people are going to reject you, go to one where they accept the truth. And then he says in verse 15 and on, it's going to be more tolerable in judgment for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah than for those who reject my truth now, with me here, with all the evidence that they have before them, with all the miracles. If they reject me now, it'll be worse for them in hell than even Sodom and Gomorrah, which I've said before as well, which implies there are degrees of severity, degrees of punishment in hell, not necessarily layers of hell or first level of hell and second level of hell and third level, but severity of punishment in hell. He says in verse 18, you'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake. This is where he states, don't worry about what to say. When you're brought before them for preaching the truth, I will give you the words to say. That plays out, of course, in the apostles' lives. Many of them in the book of Acts and beyond, according to church history, are brought before politics, politicians, and asked, what are you doing, and why are you claiming these things? And they're threatened, and God gives them the words to say. He says, when they persecute you, verse 23, flee into another. When I was young, I didn't really know Scripture well, but I was very, very zealous of the parts I did know limited parts. And so I, w I remember thinking only cowards would run from persecution. Like it would be an honor to die for Christ. I remember telling, I was, I was newly um, brought back to Christ. I'd been saved since I was five, but I had just recently come back to Christ. And I remember telling one of my supervisors, I was working at the distribution center. He was an older fellow, a father, he had kids. And I, we would talk about spiritual things. And I said, you know, I think the greatest honor would be to be a martyr. I hope that someday I can die for the Lord. I'm praying for that. I told him that. And he said, Russ, you might want to rethink that. You probably shouldn't be praying that you would die for Christ. And I thought, what an odd thing for this man who claims to be a lover of God to say to me. I really thought that's odd that he would say it. I would think he would encourage me to do that. <laughs> and I, I, at that time, that was a time in my life where I thought, you know, if I'm ever pers persecuted, I'm not running. I'm going to stay there, and if I die, I die. That's just how it's going to be. And yet I see her Christ commanding his apostles, you don't need to die needlessly. If you can escape, then escape. <laughs> it's only after reading more in depth the, the Gospels and 
and the book of Acts, what do you find the Apostle Paul doing multiple times? Escaping. <laughs> Not every time. There were times where he stuck to his guns. There was a higher calling. But uh, you know what's interesting? That the time that he was arrested in Jerusalem, God literally told him, do not go. I, I've always been a little perplexed by that one. God warned the Apostle Paul, the prophet Agabus, I believe his name was, and said, hey, if you go, this is going gonna, is gonna to happen. You sure you really want to do this? The Apostle Paul says, As I'm going. I'm doing this. I'm doing this thing. <laughs> so he was adamant about that, but there were plenty of other times. He's lowered out of a city in a basket. There was other times where there's crowds wanting to kill him and, you know, raising their fists to stone him to death. And he's told, you better get out of town, Paul. And uh, on one occasion, he waits one night and leaves the next day. You know, other times he walks out of the city. The Apostle Paul recognized the value of living another day to keep giving the truth. And so how does this apply to us? You know, right now it doesn't. We're not being persecuted right now. It does apply to some of our brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world where we should never belittle them if they run from a country because their life is at stake. We should do everything in our power to help them and assist them so that they can live another day to give the gospel another time. Verse 24, he says, hey, you're no better than me. The disciple is not better than his master. And this is where he said, if they called me Satan, they're going to call you Satan. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. He's forewarning them. A lot of young guys, they go into ministry. And you know, I found a lot of colleges and a lot of preachers, at least in my experience, in, in talking with guys. It seems like colleges and preachers want to give young men and women only the best. Like, it's going to be great. Ministry is awesome. People are going to love you. You're going to see great things done for God. You won't regret it. That was mostly what I heard. On a rare occasion, you would hear warnings. It's, it is tough, tough, and these things and that things. That was, a, that was a very small amount of what I heard. No wonder these young guys get into ministry and are just discouraged almost immediately. Why? Because they weren't told it was going to be bad. They weren't told it was going to be hard. Maybe partly, but not like this. Reality, when reality sets in, it is much different than what they were told. Why? Because this doesn't sell well in colleges. Come and join our preacher program because it's the worst. I'm not saying it's the worst. I'm just saying, right? Come and join uh, our college and be a missionary because everyone's going to hate you. And your family will mock you. And your wife will have the hardest time. And your own kids might turn their back on you. And ministry because of how hard it is. Come here and do this thing because of all this. They're not going to sell that degree. They're not going to sell this college. So like all good marketing, you only look at the positive. You only talk about the best. Because colleges are selling degrees. Colleges are selling and marketing tuition costs. I'm not saying I'm blaming them. I'm just stating a fact. That's how it is. Not going to tell you in every college. I have not been to every college. Not going to tell you that every preacher who has a chance to speak to college students will say that. Obviously, they don't. But too many do. And the evidence is in the high turnover rate of young pastors. That's the evidence of what I just said. The evidence is in the high level of discouragement among young pastors. Ministry is discouraging enough. A lot of these guys, though, are discouraged because it's literally, from what they've, t they've said from their own mouth, that's not what I thought it would be. Over and over again, this is said. It's not what I thought it would be. 
I wasn't prepared for this, they say. I never heard this at college, they're told, or it's stated. I am so glad Christ wasn't trying to market the gospel. Christ wasn't trying to market his commission. He told them like it was. He's not trying to sell anything. He's saying, you do this, and they're going to hate you. You do this, they're literally going to call you Satan. You do this, they're going to drag you before the magistrates, try to arrest you, and even try to kill you if you do this. He says, hey, remember how my own brothers hate me? Remember how back uh, when I was back in Nazareth, they tried to throw me over the cliff? It's not going to be better for you. He says, if they treated me that way, they're going to treat you worse. No servant is better than his master. Expect worse than the master, he says. I will tell you, it's not because my college told me this. It's not because professors told me. It's because I just told you they didn't. But I read the Bible for myself, and I knew full well as a young man what I was getting myself into. And so when reality hit for me, it didn't really hit because I already expected it. I expected that people would dislike me. I expected that people would even downright hate me. It doesn't make it easier knowing it, but the shock's not there. You expected it. Christian, whether you're called a full-time minister or not, Stop being shocked when people hate you. Stop being shocked when people call you names. They did much worse to our Savior. So before he commissions them, he warns them, verse 28, don't be afraid of them. They're going to hate you. They're going to want to kill you. They're going to to want to imprison you. Do not be afraid of them. The worst they can do is kill you. And the apostles are like, whoa, you know, verse verse 28, the worst they can do is kill me? Seriously? Like, that's not encouraging. But Christ says, hey, remember who I am. Remember who God the Father is. You're on the right side. You're on the winning side. Then he goes on to encourage them about the sparrows and the hairs on their head. And he says, I know your hair. I I know the sparrows when it falls. I will not forget you. I will not lose sight of you. Verse 32, whoever confesses me before men, the Father will confess him. That does not mean... Say out loud, Christ is Lord to be saved. It means that those who are willing to confess Jesus Christ is Lord, you do that when you get saved. That is how you get saved. He's my God. You confess that in this life, you will be saved. If you don't confess that in this life, if you don't believe that, if you do not submit to Christ as Lord, if you do not embrace Christ as Lord, then you won't be saved. That's all that's saying. If you deny him, verse 33, he'll deny you. He said, I'm... I am not, I'm sorry, think not that I am come to send peace on earth. Not peace, but a sword. He says, verse 35, for I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law. A man's foes shall be those of his own household. Verse 37, you got a choice to make. Who will you love more, me or your family? When he says, You need to hate your family. He's not saying to actually hate them with bitterness. In this context, verse 37, he that loveth father or mother more than me. That is the right definition of other texts where we see you got to hate your father and mother. This is is the defining context. This is the definition right here. He's not saying be bitter against them, despise them, and want to kill them. He's saying love me more, which to them will look like what? Hatred. Because if you love God more, you'll go where he wants, not where they want. You'll do what he wants, not what they want. 
You'll be what he wants, not what they want. And to your family, that will look a whole lot like hatred. To your family, when you speak the truth of God, it will look like you hate them. To your family, living in sin and rebellion, when you live righteousness, it will look like you judge them and hate them. To a sibling, to a parent, to a cousin, to a child who's living in sin, immorality, when you state that is wrong and you state it because you love God and you love truth, they will think you hate them. They will say you hate them. You don't but it looks like it to them because you love God more. That's this text. And God says to his followers, I'm going to commission you, but if you really want to be successful, if you really want to make it, you've got to love me more. Because if you don't love me more, you'll give up. If you don't love me more, you won't be able to withstand the hatred that will be thrown your way, even by your family. If you don't love me more, You'll run from the pain. Not escape persecution, but literally run from me because it's painful to follow me. Do you love me more? Because if you do, you'll stick it out. Verse 39, he that findeth his life shall lose it. He that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. He loved me more because that's true victory right there. That's where you'll really find success. He that receiveth the prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man receive a righteous man's reward. Whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. So he ends by stating those who you come into contact with will be rewarded if they accept what you bring. If they accept you as a prophet and your truth, they'll be rewarded for that. If they accept you as a righteous man and your truth, they'll be rewarded for accepting that. If they give you in a desire to partner with you, they'll be rewarded for that. They'll even be rewarded for giving water to a young child who's not a prophet. They'll be rewarded for giving food to someone in my name who who is not what you might call a righteous man. (laughs) How much more when they give towards the, you know, someone who's in my name doing my work, how much more? But even when they give to anyone in my name, they'll be rewarded. And then chapter 11, verse 1, and we're done. It came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in the cities. All right, so he sends them off. And when he sends them off, what does Christ do? He himself preaches as well. Christ doing what he asked them to do. He didn't send them and sit. He sent them and went. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and the many things we saw tonight. Thank you for the challenges, the encouragement. I pray that we would take these, apply them, follow them, embrace them. I pray that we would love you more than anyone and anything else that we would accept reality, realizing following you is not easy, but sure is worth it. In Jesus' name, amen.